0: This is Benoit Blanc. Uh, Mr. Blanc is a private investigator of great renown.
1: I suspect foul play. I have eliminated no suspects. Will you explain it to us then, detective?
0: Welcome to the now playing podcast Knives Out movie retrospective series. Something is afoot with this whole affair. I know it. I believe you know it too. Hosted by Justin. Welcome, gang. We got a great weekend. Arnie.
1: I cannot overstate my gratitude to be here.
0: And Stuart.
1: Crew, we've arrived. Disruptors have assembled.
0: This episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language.
2: Now, uh, I'm going to record this just to make things easier.
0: We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Alright, when's the murder mystery start?
3: Today, we're talking about Knives Out, starring Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Anna DeArmas, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, Tony Collette, Lakeith Stanfield, Catherine Langford, and Christopher Plummer, directed by Ryan Johnson. This is Arnie, the now-playing co-host who instinctively pulls at loose threads on my parachute. Ed Stuart. And I say, this is Justin. And I say, you're gonna be doing that foghorn leghorn accent the whole show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Think I'll drop it. (laughs) Think I'll drop it. (laughs) So welcome to
3: our Knives Out Retrospective series. The second one either just came out or is just coming out, depending on how you want to look at it. And... The first one a few years back. Did you guys see this when it was first released? Arnie, you know the intro to that. I saw it with you. Well, all right. I, I knew Stuart's answer. <laughs> we saw it with my wife. We all went to the theater to see it together. Justin, <laughs> did you see it?
1: <laughs> you know, this is one that I was aware of and saw trailers for it. And I was like, gonna see that, gonna see that. And then next thing you know, it's three years later and still didn't see it. So... Yeah, when I heard we were doing this, I got super excited. I'm like, yes, I'm finally seeing Knives Out. So, yeah, it's I'm, I'm glad I was forced into it, because you know how things go. You say you're going to see a movie, and then the next thing you know, it's 20 years later. And it's like, how the hell have you not seen Magnolia? <laughs> mm-hmm. I,
3: I don't know. I still just haven't. <laughs> it's good, though. I was glad we were able to have a newbie to this series on this. I... Always like it, especially with mysteries, to have the fresh perspective.
1: Yeah, I'm coming in green.
2: And it was kind of weird, Arnie. Like, you know, we talk all the time about movies, but rarely do we sit down and watch them together. And even rarer still does it feel like we go to see a movie just because we both want to see it and not because we were going to cover it for the show. There was no thought of that. Like, we were just like, wouldn't it be fun to go see this thing that kind of looked like Clue? That was my thought was, you know, for Our generation, the reference point for a drawing room murder mystery is the flop 1985 (laughs) board game adaptation movie that I always loved. Saw it in theaters, and we, you know, maybe one day we'll do a proper podcast review too. But that was my thought going to Knives Out.
1: My wife has always been a huge fan of the Clue movie, so... I didn't have to twist her arm too much to have her sit down and watch this movie with me. So that was the selling point I used too. I'm like, hey, it looks looks like it could be a modern day Clue. That is weird,
3: though, that that's the closest thing we have, isn't it? Is a parody of the murder mystery genre. I saw Clue in theaters, love Clue. It's where I was introduced to Tim Curry. My favorite Tim Curry performance to this day is still Clue. And I find myself... Even back then, the reason I saw Clue is I like mystery movies. I like trying to figure out the mysteries. I like trying to be smarter than the filmmakers. Can I catch them in what they're trying to do and figure it out beforehand? But since Clue, in the 30 years in between, it doesn't feel like we've had a whole lot of
2: Agatha Christie-esque movies. We've had lots of mysteries and thrillers. But sexy ones, right? Like Sharon Stone spreading her legs. Like this genre, the way that this movie is taking it is very old fashioned. The idea that we're going to get this large cast of characters, stick them in a house and have, you know, it feels like a play. I mean, Agatha Christie, a lot of her works did succeed on the stage. That can be hard. Any old genre can be hard to revive. And yeah, while we might have had many mysteries and thrillers, this one felt old-fashioned, retro, and that was, again, part of the fun.
1: And maybe due to the success of this movie, I, I recently saw a Netflix movie, I believe it was Netflix or HBO Max, one of the two, called See How They Run. And it's kind of, you know, it's an ensemble mystery based around an Agatha Christie play and it's set in the 1940s. Yeah, so they're trying to capitalize on this movie.
3: And I guess it is being brought back a little bit by Kenneth Branagh. He did the Murder on the Orient Express and the Death
2: on the Nile. Yeah, there'll be a third one next year. Maybe we'll cover it. But yeah, something that I always kind of liked. But my, I realize a lot of my passion for it did come from books and stuff. Like, I feel like... Choose Your Own Adventure, uh, part of the inspiration for this movie. I don't know if you remember Choose Your Own Adventure number eight, Arnie, but it was who killed Harlow Thrombey.
3: I had like the first 24 of them, but I don't remember number eight specifically. I also think I came to mysteries through books, but I was more the three investigators in Encyclopedia Brown
1: than I was. Mm-hmm. Encyclopedia Brown Club, man. Hell yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah.
2: He's never gotten a movie, somehow.
1: It's a damn shame. Mm.
2: But I was also a fan of this director. Another inclusion in the book is Brick. The debut feature of Ryan Johnson that kind of announced that he's really super into hard-boiled, noir, detective kind of retro affairs. He also made another caper, Brothers Bloom, that I really liked. And then, yeah, he got mixed up in sci-fi and his name got really tainted with that... Star Wars movie.
3: The best of the sequel trilogy, so I don't know why his name would be tainted other than the sequel trilogy itself is tainted.
1: But I mean,
2: you can say that if you want. I think it's the worst Star Wars movie I've ever
1: seen, but at least live action. <laughs> I was wondering if we we're going to get into a litigation of that, but I think it's best to skip over that, right? Mm. I mean, this is this is his first movie coming off of being the Star Wars director, so
2: Right. You want to talk about Knives Out, people were out to get this man, and he turned it all around with this movie. I was pretty convinced this thing was going to flop. It just didn't feel like the kind of thing. Again, it was so old-fashioned. People aren't going to get this, but boy, was I wrong. They opened it around Thanksgiving, and I guess people were in the spirit of hating their families. This thing made <laughs> $165 million at American box office alone.
3: Yeah, it was a rare hit Of a medium budget film on an original concept. You just don't get those much anymore. Also old-fashioned, kind of like the movie itself. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: And Oscar-nominated, too. It was up for original script. It had absolutely no chance of winning against Parasite. The right film won. But it was considered very clever in its staging. And again, uh, just overall, a really big phenomenon that I think surprised everyone in 2019.
3: Yeah, I expected it to be good going in. I mean, there's a reason why I just wanted to see the movie for fun. I don't do that if I think it's going to suck. But I didn't expect it to hit wide with audiences, especially with Ryan Johnson at the helm. God knows he's a Twitter pariah. And he was supposed to be doing his own Star Wars trilogy. Remember, that was announced after The Last Jedi came out was Ryan Johnson
2: working on his own Star Wars trilogy. The Last Jedi is his last Star Wars. We all know this.
1: You (laughs) might have believed that. I have to believe it has something to do with this huge ensemble cast. I mean, anybody and everybody would be able to find at least somebody they like in this movie. You know, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of everybody in this cast, but I can pick out two or three people. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll go see a Chris Evans movie just to check it out. Oh, absolutely. This cast is huge. Jamie Lee Curtis... Chris
3: Evans, Michael Shannon, Tony Collette, plus pulling in some people
2: who I'm like, where have they been? Like Don Johnson. Mm
1: hmm.
2: He had been making some good little noir films on the indie scene, but yeah, this one kind of reintroduced him to mainstream audiences. And I, I guess you could also point out that the fact that Daniel Craig was, you know, still riding high as 007, uh, those movies weren't coming out very fast and you know we were all waiting i think for at this point for the bond movie to come this felt like i don't know it didn't feel like bond but it felt like an opportunity to see him do something while we waited for bond
3: he was my one point of trepidation i mean i like him as bond in other things Kind of iffy on him. And that accent, when I saw it in the trailers, I'm like, is that supposed to be intentionally bad? Is he really going to be doing that the whole movie? I just wasn't sure him attempting a southern drawl was really
2: the right way to go. (laughs) Admittedly, I feel like I like Daniel Craig as Bond when he tries to do comedy. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a really good caper film, Lucky Logan. He was the weak link for that for me because he tried to be so big and funny. I know what you mean. Good movie, though. It's like Mm -hmm. Ocean's Eleven. Agreed. So let's find out if this is a good movie. Arnie, give him the plot. We'll get into Knives Out. Harlan
3: Thrombey is dead. The wealthy 85-year-old author, played by Christopher Plummer, died of an apparent suicide, cutting his own throat. But if it's so cut and dry, why has famed private detective Benoit Blanc been hired to investigate the death? And Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, was hired anonymously. So who hired him? It turns out there's more to Harlan's death than a simple suicide. But who was involved? It seems everyone had a motive to murder the old man. Harlan had confronted his son-in-law Richard, played by Don Johnson, about an affair he was having, cheating on Harlan's daughter Linda, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. Harlan's son, Walt, played by Michael Shannon, had just been fired from running Harlan's publishing company. Harlan's daughter-in-law, Joni, played by Tony Collette, had just been cut off financially after Harlan discovered she was stealing from him. Yet, with all those motives, the one who's literally covering her tracks is Harlan's nurse, Marta, played by Anna Diarmis. The night of Harlan's death, she had mixed up his drugs and given him a lethal dose of morphine. To protect the innocent nurse from an honest mistake, Harlan quickly killed himself. It may have worked, but the pressure on Marta increases exponentially when it's revealed Harlan had changed his will, writing out all his children, and leaving his substantial estate entirely to Marta. Marta confides all this to Harlan's grandson Ransom, played by Chris Evans. Ransom offers to help in exchange for a cut of the inheritance. Also, someone is blackmailing Marta, but neither she nor Ransom know who it is. Following the blackmailer's instructions, Marta discovers the blackmailer was Harlan's housekeeper, Fran. Marta comes upon the woman dying of a drug overdose, Marta's medical bag laying close by. Blanc figures out this case. While Marta did mix up the drug vials, she did not kill Harlan. That murder was plotted by Ransom. Harlan had told Ransom everything was being left to Marta. The grandson, who relied on Harlan's money to live, hoped to kill the old man before the will could be changed. Ransom snuck into the house and switched the drugs so that Marta would give a lethal dose of morphine. So when Marta accidentally switched the vials, she actually gave Harlan the correct doses. Ransom realized if Marta was convicted of killing Harlan, then she'd be forced to renounce her inheritance. So Ransom not only leaves clues that Marta killed Harlan, but he also framed Marta for Fran's murder and was the one who anonymously hired Blanc to come and expose Marta. While all of Blanc's evidence against Ransom is circumstantial, Ransom, in anger, confesses to the murders and tries to kill Marta. Ransom is arrested and Marta gets the inheritance, despite the objections of Harlan's
2: angry children and grandchildren, as credits roll. And one thing I always love, I talk about it a lot on these shows, a sense of location. You give me like a cool place, art direct, some anywhere, and it could be the most cut and paste kind of story. And I'll just enjoy looking at all the bric-a-brac on the walls. When we start here, I know I'm going to have a good time. Because Harlan Thrombey's house is dope. It's just such a cool place to be with all the staircases. Who knows what all those puppets are? I could freeze frame this thing and and spend hours just taking it all in. Yeah, you say bric-a-brac. They actually give you
3: weird insert close-up shots of all the strange things around this house. And you find through conversation that a lot of the things in this house, the house itself are taken as inspiration from Harlan's novels. So I have to suspect that each of these things is somewhere in a Harlan book.
2: Yeah, not only that, but it said in the commentary that a lot of them are mystery movies that Ryan Johnson loved, Sleuth being one of them, the old Michael Caine from the 70s. Lawrence Olivier, don't know if you know that one, but some of the puppets are directly taken from that. Again, that kind of gamesmanship can just be fun, right? As someone that likes movies a lot,
1: uh, just going through and trying to spot references could be its own pastime. I mean, impressively, behind the scenes, this is only two different locations. They use that main house for most of the shoot, and the only outside location that's not actually in the house, they found a library in another location to shoot. So this is not a set? No, this is on-location shooting.
2: Why am I not living in this house?
1: <laughs> I'm sure that question and a couple million dollars.
2: <laughs> yeah, I can think of millions of reasons why. Yes, I know. <laughs> but we quickly get to the top of this staircase. Harlan's not in bed. His maid's looking for him with the morning coffee. She finds his corpse, and we are thrown right away into a murder mystery. Who killed Harlan Thromby?
3: And... It's equally quickly, we jump a week later, and the family has gathered for the funeral. And quite a family it is. It's hard to separate sometimes the actors from their characters, and it was this time, my second time watching this film, that I really paid close attention to who was who, how were they related. The first time I saw this film, I think I was overwhelmed by the size of the family, trying to remember whose children went with whose parents and how they all related. And the second time, I think I got it a lot better.
1: Okay, good, because I do have a question for you, because you said something in the plot summary that kind of caught my ear weird, is that Tony Collette's character, Joni, is daughter-in-law? Yes. So is there a missing character? A dead son? Yes, there is a dead son named Neil. Aha.
2: Uh-huh. And I don't know if there's any reference to him in the house. It'd be funny if that we could freeze frame somewhere and maybe see a photo of him. There's no visual of who Neil is. But yeah, the reason why she sort of has an outsider status is the fact that she's not really blood
1: relation. But still sucking on the teat of the family, her and her daughter. Well, sure. Who else is going to fund flam the <laughs> pathetic beauty care line? But yeah, coming into this not knowing... You know, I knew, knowing that it was a mystery, but not really sure what flavor it was going to be. I enjoyed the introduction to all these characters. You know, we're introduced to them and meeting them through a series of interviews with the police in the house.
2: And yet, I think it goes by, because this is such an all-star cast, or at least we know everyone involved, we're missing the main character. I forget the fact that this the story is, the engine of it is Marta. That actually, they tell us who at least believes they've killed Harlan Thrombey in the next scene. She wakes up in a panic, you know, like guilt ridden. She wasn't invited to the funeral, but she's sure invited to the police inquiry. You may think because she's just the nurse and we don't know who Ana de Armas is that this is, You know, just as important as the housekeeper that found the dead body. A functional character, but not a suspect. What I love about this movie is how sneakily it makes her story important to the crime and to the subtext. What great casting
3: in this movie in that... You have all of these rich, self-important people. They all own their own companies and everything. And so you cast them with Tony Collette and Jamie Lee Curtis and Michael Shannon, right? And then there's this nurse who is the daughter of an illegal immigrant who is struggling to make ends meet, still living with her mother. And you bring in a lesser-known actress. She had done some stuff but she wasn't a known name. By using the star power and how the family thinks of themselves as above Marta, it instantly sells to the audience, well, we know these people and we don't know Marta. And so it really helps reflect that power dynamic through casting. And yet, Anita Armas is great in this, so... By casting someone lesser known,
2: they still got a great performance. I mean, there's a reason. Daniel Craig, like, works with her in this movie and says, you're in the next Bond. Like, you're in No Time to Die. And indeed, she has the best moments in that movie as well. She is the scene stealer in all the Cuba
1: moments of that last Daniel Craig movie. Yeah, but I mean, you, you hit it right on the head here, right out the gate, because a miscast in this role could sink this whole movie. If we're not on board with Marta's character and feel the heart that she has, this whole movie goes down the tubes. If we see her as a sinister or even slightly underhanded character, this whole plot just unravels right from the get-go.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because she is the star of the movie. I will make the argument she is the focal character, but because we're trained by genre, we're looking at the detective. The detective is always the most important person in any mystery, But he's actually kind of an antagonist. We actually worry about Marta being discovered because we like her so much. And very early into this, we realize that she probably is responsible for Harlan being dead. I didn't
3: suspect her on my initial viewing. I didn't catch her waking up in that panic as a sign of guilt and... It's revealed pretty quickly on during these police investigations in the first half hour. She starts acting in certain ways that perhaps an innocent person wouldn't. But there's so many characters we're being introduced to. And I also just love the editing of this film. How we cut back and forth between the police interviews. And you'll get something like jamie lee curtis's character of linda saying i'm not gonna spill the family secrets and then you immediately cut to her husband richard played by don johnson spilling the family secrets (laughs) i mean the one thing i want to drive home about this movie is it is funny in addition to having a murder mystery it's not poking fun at the murder mystery genre the way clue does But it's certainly poking fun at family dynamics, and it's certainly going to be lighthearted fare. And the first time I saw this movie, I think I had a smile on my face the whole time because there's constant ironies and jokes going on.
2: For sure, yeah, this is
1: black comedy at least as important as the mystery itself it has to be because i mean this mystery is solved in the first hour of this movie so to stick around for the next hour there has to be something to keep us on our seats
3: here's the thing though justin what got me in the theaters i went in thinking this is a murder mystery and we get these interviews and things and then yeah it's told pretty quickly definitely in the first hour we get a Entire flashback showing everything. We see Marta screwed up, Harlan killed himself, right? So where's the mystery? The movie then becomes hoping that Marta escapes prosecution for a mistake and watching her tête-à-tête with Benoit Blanc. But... The secret is there still is a mystery. There still is an unknown villain. It is a murder mystery that pretends it's
2: not. Mm -hmm. And so many villains. I mean, I do think that the sense is maybe only one person has done the murder, but everyone's guilty, right? Everyone here deserves a knife in the back or is going to put a knife in someone else's back. We have, what, about four primary suspects as we get started here. We have sort of the generic detective, the one that's going by the book, and the one who is very much willing to say that, yes, this is a suicide. We know what happened. This man slit his throat. There's the knife. There he is in bed. There's no reason to conclude foul play, but he's going to talk to everyone involved. And then we have this famed detective, played by Daniel Craig, who is, you know... Intruding on the questions with banging on the piano keys and, you know, slowly but surely asserting his own thoughts into this interrogation. And we realize that all of these people at least have a motive for wanting this 80 year old mystery writer to be dead.
1: And all of these people have at least heard. Of Blanc, you know he's he's somewhat of a high-profile character.
2: Yeah, well, they read the tweet about the New Yorker article about him, right? <laughs> like they're not really up on it because they're really self-absorbed people. But yes, fame is intoxicating to everyone, and so you have Tony Collette as Joni. Uh, yeah, kind of starstruck. And kind of flirty with this guy who is hanging in the background and really wants to know why she was there early for the party. Everything centers around the fact that it was this birthday party the family had gathered to celebrate a man who had sold a lot of murder mystery books. And he goes to bed, wakes up dead. Who could it be? Tony Collette, I think we are to suspect her because, yes, as you stated in the plot summary, Arnie, she was double dipping. She was kind enough to be getting paid, even though she wasn't blood relation. And I think it had been at least 15 years since her husband had been alive. So not every family would think that she was entitled to something, but they kept throwing money at her and her daughter and she betrayed that trust. She double dipped and had two different accountants drawing the same amount so that she got paid twice as much. And that
1: caught up with her. I guess, Stuart, do you really think that we're to suspect her? Or is it the way the movie's playing that they offer her motives first?
2: I think in any good murder mystery, you want to have a variety of people that could have done it. And yeah, she's got a different energy than everybody else. Like, she feels more liberal. You know, some of these people have really uh, negative values about Mexican people, specifically Marta and all. But she plays coy. You know, she acts like she's woke and working this you know company that has all of these new age ideas but in the end yeah it's all sort of a, a front and there were even deleted scenes that showed that her company was basically peddling things that gave people rashes and they, they really highlighted the fact that flam was a scam i don't know that you need that i think you get it enough from tony collette's funny performance see and tony collette in this is so different
3: from how i know tony collette to be when i think of her I think of the sixth sense and I think of hereditary and mm-hmm. she is so serious in those films her flighty performance here her ditziness she plays it so well but I remember when I saw this in theaters thinking wow that's Tony Collette that is not at all what I expect from a Tony Collette performance
2: her star making role was Muriel's wedding she did come about in romantic comedy Yeah, that's what I was about to say.
3: Oh, I remember that film. I saw that back in the day. When she was still Australian. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you mentioned Marta being Mexican. One of the funny jokes in this is the entire family's subtle racism. I don't know if Marta is Mexican, Because at one point, she's called Peruvian, Brazilian, Paraguay. I mean, they just, every single time the family mentions her, they mention a different Hispanic country from which she comes.
2: (laughs) Yeah, because when Marta shows up there for the questioning, everyone is telling her, oh, you should have been at the funeral. I was in your corner. I was outvoted. Well, if everybody wanted her there, then why wasn't she there? I think it's obvious. The fact that they pretend to know her, but don't. You know, the daughter gets indignant that someone calls her the help, but later will abuse the knowledge that her mother has a legal status against her. Uh, Yes, these people have knives, and they will stick it into your back when you're not looking, but of course they want to seem
1: like compassionate people, oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's right there on the screen that another aspect of this movie is a dagger in the heart of neoliberalism. I mean, it really is just kind of taking a swipe right at the people who will say the right things in the right places, but they act a completely different way when you're not around, so I mean such is family,
2: right, and and you see it turning on each other. We see that in that jamie Lee Curtis's Linda is saying, "I took my millions and built a realty company from Dad, whereas my brother." Walt, played by Michael Shannon, he just got the rights to the publishing and, you know, like that's, he was just handed something. Again, that resentment plays out between the two of them throughout the movie and you see the way that they judge each other's children, both of which are questionable. Yeah, the the neo-Nazi
3: child (laughs) who's doxing liberals online and doing all this, this alt-right troll, I think he's called, is... Rather an amusing caricature, but I have to say I love these family dynamics. Not to get too personal, but I feel at home with these people. Mm. I could be related to them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I, yeah, I won't say any more. But I've known you for a long time, and I've known your family, and I do feel <laughs> like I've had a few dinners that are not unlike this.
1: <laughs> I mean, it feels like dinner with the Bombs Just you know, no Prozac needed this time. I mean, it's it feels familiar in a way. Yet everybody on screen is bringing it to their characters, you know? I mean, I'm we've already talked about a lot of them, but so many people in this movie aren't American and they're doing heavy or non-existent American accents throughout this movie. Toni Collette is Australian. She's gotten good at hiding that. Daniel Craig is British and doing a southern draw and several other characters here are acting out very nicely with these vocal performances.
2: Yeah, I like the cast. And just to round it up, just to call out the other suspects here. So, Walt is a suspect because... He wanted Dad to sell the publishing rights, right? Movies are where it's at. I think it's funny that he says that we got a deal at Netflix because this movie's sequel is going to be made by Netflix. But basically, Dad is firing him. And so that's the motive, right? You're no longer going to be in charge of something that you never had the right to control. You know, that was the way Dad puts it. I wrote these books, not you. Why are you even saying what should happen to them? Ouch. Okay, that's a reason to kill, certainly. And then, yeah, maybe Linda doesn't have a good reason. Jamie Lee Curtis seems, you know, innocent enough, I guess. She wouldn't want her dad dead anyway. But her husband uh is having an affair, and Harlan knows about that and is wanting to send her a pink letter that will reveal that. Or supposedly that's the fear. That's Don Johnson's fear as he has that fight on the night of the party. And again, motive to kill. Yeah, I think what it is is each child's
3: family has one suspect. And in one case, it's the child himself, Walt, Michael Shannon's character. And then in the other two cases,
1: it's the in-laws. It's
3: Richard or Joni.
1: Yeah, but Ransom is the son of Jimmy Lee Curtis and Don Johnson. Yes.
2: Right. And you wouldn't suspect Captain America, would you?
1: Well, only because he's not in the movie for the first 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, we see the same scene played out a couple different times, and it's basically a wisp of Chris Evans floating out of the scene. And it's not until the later half of this movie that he actually shows up as a character. Yeah,
2: we know that he stormed out the night of. He Usually he fights in public. He's known as a problematic child. Uh, I don't know, maybe not a problematic child, but one that speaks his mind. He seems to be the black sheep of the family. And so he went behind closed doors and talked to Harlan about something. And yeah, the neoconservative kid heard threats. And we know that Chris Evans stormed out that night. And so, yeah, suspect number four, perhaps. There's our four viable suspects. And again, it's debatable as to whether this is even murder. I mean, <laughs> Elliot is insistent that this is suicide. And it is Daniel Craig who feels like I wouldn't have been hired if there wasn't foul play.
3: I. Absolutely love Daniel Craig's line when talking about the kid who overheard Ransom. What were the overheard words by the Nazi child masturbating in the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, just a good laugh line there.
1: No, that that pretty much sums up the sense of humor of this movie. If you can't get a chuckle out of that, then I don't know if you're going to find too much else funny here.
2: <laughs> well, he was just paraphrasing what they were saying about each other. Again, he's talking to these people privately, and I think it's alleged that this kid is so weird that he was in that bathroom masturbating to dead horses, I think, is, is the accusation.
1: Dead deers. <laughs> deers, excuse me, yes. Right.
2: So, yes, again, not a lot of love lost here. A lot of people that, again, maybe would kill each other, would kill everyone to have their hands on a massive family fortune. And so anybody could be the suspect. You want to feel that in a murder mystery. And yet there's the extra twist of maybe it was all suicide. But certainly when Benoit meets Marta, he feels he's met his Watson. Here's somebody that can really help me in my investigation because she's got this awesome tell. She's the help, like it that word or not. She's been floating around in the background while all these people have talked about each other. And so if I ask her the right questions she will regurgitate if she tries to lie. So I can find out, I can confirm how much I've just heard from all of these nasty people about what actually the situation was. And he sees her very much as an ally. He wants to keep her close as he keeps digging into this family and their motives. But we're going to find out at the end of this film, he
3: suspects her from the beginning or knew she had something to do with it. So by keeping her close, By calling her Watson, he's, to a degree, disarming her to try to investigate her closest of all.
2: And that is the interesting thing, is that you can, many times, I find myself thinking that Benoit is behind the curve, that he's not as smart as we are, that, again, he should suspect Marta when, you know, she's, again, very early on, pretty much after he's anointed that he's going to work with her, she is telling the audience What really happened? And yeah, I feel like this is a murder mystery where I really don't care about the detective. I'll go ahead and say it. I really don't care about Benoit Blanc. I feel like it's not his movie. It is her movie. And he kind of recedes into the background. You're right. In the end, he's vindicated. He was on to her. He saw the dot of blood on her white shoe. And some of this was just posturing. But because this is positioned from Marta's point of view... I don't know. I've never really connected Daniel Craig that much. I'll agree with you. He is an agent of
3: change in this film. He is a functional character, but we never get to know him, so therefore we can't care about him. Mm -hmm. Marta is the emotional center of this film. She's the heart of the family. She's the only sympathetic character, really, on screen. Not that Benoit Blanc isn't sympathetic, but he's just so stoic. We know nothing about him. You can't become connected to that character, you could just enjoy watching Craig's very broad performance. So I'll completely agree that this is Anna De Armas's film through and through. She is the character who has the biggest arc, and she's the one who we follow mostly. The entire flashback that reveals what happened that night is told from her point of view.
2: And after we've seen it, Suddenly, yeah, I think the way that Ryan Johnson talks about it is this starts as an Agatha Christie, and then it becomes Hitchcock. It's, uh, you know, man on the run. Suddenly, I realize she's the killer. Okay, we'll talk about this night. You know, she's asked to confirm all the timelines. We know that she went upstairs, and she was one of the last people to see Harlan, left in a hurry at midnight. Harlan came down for a snack, and then the body's found, you know in the morning that would appear to be the entire story except we see that she switched vials that as the nurse they were playing a game of go and because he always beats her he flipped the board in jest, and she switches vials and gives him an overdose of morphine suddenly we know she's the murderer but we don't blame her for that we feel bad for her that she did this on accident and was kind of pushed by harlan in his last moments to lie about it
1: Yeah. I mean, what an interesting twist, right? Now our our murder victim is helping to exonerate the person who the fingers are going to be pointed at in his last few minutes of life. And what a great storytelling device. I mean, he knows there's a clicking time bomb on his back and yet... The one person he truly cares about in this house, he's going to make sure she gets away with it.
2: And he does that in part because he realizes it was a murder plot, right? Like, we can see in Christopher Plummer's performance, she goes, oh my God, gave you too much of the wrong thing, goes to get the antidote and says, I know it should be in my bag, but it is not. And when we cut back to him, he says something to them like, this sounds like a good murder plot. We realize that he knows somebody set him up. Maybe he doesn't know who did it, but he knows that this woman has been set up to take a fall. And that's why he's willing to. He also has a line about saying he doesn't care about dying or not. I feel like that's a little bit convenient. I would care. If someone just gave me a morphine overdose 80 years or or not, I wouldn't be ambivalent about it. But I think he knows... She wasn't the one that made this overdose happen.
3: Yeah, it's a convenient line. He actually says it before the morphine overdose. He's like, I'm not afraid to die. I've had a good life. And then comes the injection. But I didn't read it as he suspected something. He starts taking notes of this. He's like, oh, this would be good to use in my next murder mystery But I didn't get in his performance, and maybe it's there and I just didn't see it, but I didn't get that he realized that Marta was being set up.
2: Look at that moment where she goes in the bag and says, where's the antidote? When she says it's supposed to be here and it's not, look at his face. And
1: it tells you that he knows. Yeah, I believe he comes to that realization, which is crazy yes. because this is all taking place in this seven-minute time frame that, you know, once this much hits your heart, you're going down. So, yeah, to have that many emotions and still have the mental capacity to put together a plot for her is is incredible.
2: Yeah, so, yeah, he, she would have probably just... You know, again, she says, I'm calling the ambulance. Part of the noises that was heard was that he trips her and says, no, you are not going to get me help. You are going to let this play out. This could be very dangerous for your family. Not only could you go to jail, but because your mother is undocumented, she could be deported. Your whole livelihood could be disrupted by this plot that,
1: again, I think he knows is someone else's. So it raises the question, when did he... Bequeath everything to Marta. That was not that long ago. When
3: Frank Oz shows up to read the will, I think he says it was a month ago?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe it's just that he realizes that none in his family deserve it. I'm guessing, or maybe it is because, you know, Ana de Armas is cute. And she's the only one that seems to want to play with him and and spend any time with him. Everyone else is out to use him or want something from Harlan. You know, I guess we're to see that this is... Maybe Spite, or maybe just an old man with a crush.
1: Well, we do see in some flashbacks the relationship they have. Like, she's really the only one who is there, and who cares for him. Everybody else is there because they want something from him.
2: So, yes. So, it was set in stone, and and in fact, that's why this... Switchamaru has happened, and now he being the guy that can come up with plots really fast, it's said that, you know, he has these intricate plots that are, he can pull out of thin air, he devises a way that she can sneak out of the house, or rather, she can leave noisily from the house to establish her alibi, pull off in the driveway, climb back upstairs, and then impersonate him as if he's alive when he's been dead for several minutes. And that will get her off. She could not be the killer
1: because Harlan was seen downstairs looking for a snack by Walt. After she left. Yep, and she was supposed to turn before-after the elephant statue. (laughs) Which sets up the idea that, well, we're in a murder mystery, so now we know who did it, but there's still clues to be found like a broken trellis piece and there's videotape evidence of her not leaving when she said she did
2: and if this were like the second or third benoit blanc movie we might suspect that he's on to her but because this is the first we don't know how good he is. Again, the accent, the way that he's playing. He might be a blithering idiot. Like, he feels <laughs> like a blithering idiot sometimes. So, maybe she can get away with this. I find myself rooting for Marta to, like... Throw away the trellis that broke under her foot as she was climbing up the house when the dog comes bringing it. Or stomp over her muddy tracks. You know, they're still, the security cameras are still in VHS. She doesn't do anything to that VHS, does she? She has a little magnet
3: that she pulls out of her pocket. It's like, shaped like a piece of fruit. Mm -hmm, Like a fridge
1: magnet. Yep.
2: Oh, is that what that was? (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay, so she did demagnetize the tape. She's doing all she can.
1: Well, that might cause some miscoloration on the tape. (laughs) You need a real magnet Yeah, yeah.
2: But again, this is a strange place to be in because normally in these kinds of movies, we're rooting to find the murderer. And here, we know that the murderer did it but really didn't mean to or was, you know, trapped in it if you're figuring out that part of it. And yeah, we want her to get away.
1: It's a weird thing for her to be chased by a detective and hoping she doesn't get caught. And it's about this time that the movie reminds us, well, why are we still here? And it's because somebody actually hired Benoit to come figure this out, which brings us back into the mystery. It's not just about Marta getting away with it now. It's, oh yeah, somebody did bring Benoit to this, Who was that and why? And I'm curious. Did you guys have
2: a sense about who can do it? I'll be honest. Whenever I watch procedurals, a lot of times I'll just check out and be like, ah, they'll tell me. I don't need to do the work. I don't feel like I can follow these things. It's happening too fast. If I were reading it as a book... I could take the time to try and puzzle it out. But my mind is just not sharp enough that when I'm watching a movie that I can foresee the clues. When there's this many things in play, I usually just sit back and go, well, they'll let me know.
1: Yeah, and normally my tactic is, is you know, if you're watching SVU or something, it's like, oh, well, the special guest star is the one who eventually did it. This whole movie's special guest star. So, yeah, I don't I don't know who to suspect. Mm-hmm. And
3: what threw me off my guard is it's telling me who did it. It's telling me Marta did it, and I'm glossing over the fact that Daniel Craig doesn't know who hired him, that he was hired anonymously. And so when they show that entire evening and show us that Marta is the accidental killer, supposedly, it throws me so off my guard, whereas for the first part of this movie... I'm trying to figure it out. That's what I love about a murder mystery movie is I'm trying to be one step ahead of the screenwriter. I'm trying to find the clues. And when it just spells it all out, then I just kind of get off my game and I'm like, okay, there's no mystery here. It is more suspense. It is more, can she get away with it with this premier detective on her trail?
2: Right. And the thing is, she doesn't really have a good reason to murder him like why would she be a suspect you know no one's even looking at her story no one pays attention and then they read the will then Frank Oz blows in here and yes that is Miss Piggy Frank Oz doing a cameo here as the lawyer that's gonna to read Harlan's wishes and everyone is stunned that this servant you know again they were so kind to her but the second that they realized that suddenly they've been screwed out of the family fortune and that someone not by blood that they haven't been looking carefully enough at all that scrutiny is going to mean that it's going to be harder for her to get away from this
3: yeah and you know how he got frank oz of course yoda from the last
2: jedi <laughs> oh i didn't put that together but okay <laughs> makes sense I just know that, you know, Brian Johnson, if he enjoyed it in childhood, he tries to find a way to put it into the movie.
1: So, yeah, now suddenly we're looking at Marta as somebody with a potential motive, even though we know that she didn't do it. Unless the flashback that we've been shown is somehow a manufactured memory or, you know, trying to throw us off the scent. Are we now supposed to, as an audience, be looking at Marta? Possibly? Are we looking at Chris Evans? Let's just jump to
2: the end. I think with a name like Ransom, the fact that he is so dark and sinister and stormed out, this is about the time where he comes back into the picture. He was at the will reading, even though he knew, and this is the irony, is that he came there knowing he had been cut out. That was what the fight had been about the night of the birthday party. But maybe he just came there to watch all these people get really angry angry about the fact that they can't take their own advice. They told him he'd be better off without his inheritance, but boy, they don't feel that way about themselves (laughs) when it's read aloud. And he grabs Marta. You know, he whisks her away to a bar, loads her up on beans and whatever that is, knowing she's got that regurgitation tell and then
1: wants to know the truth. And I don't know if I'm just reading Chris Evans acting wrong or he's doing something, but like I feel like I should be suspecting him, but then I feel like, is it just because he's playing this so schmarmy? You know what I'm saying? Like, everything he does and says in this movie, you're just like, ah, oh, what an ass. I just want to kind of punch him in the face. Oh, I love him, though, when he's like... Oh, yeah, yeah. Up your
3: ass, up your ass, you eat shit, you eat shit, <laughs> you eat shit. It is just
2: the ultimate anti-Captain America role, right? <laughs> Not only that, but if he were in a family of people we liked, we would see him as the problem child. But if he's having difficulty getting along with these people, who can blame him, right? Suddenly we like him because he's as outsider in his own way as Marta is. So when he proposes teaming up and they can split the fortune together, yeah, maybe that doesn't look like evil calculation. That just looks like make sure the wrong people don't get this money. But Marta knows this is not typical ransom behavior. Even she's just kind of like, this doesn't feel like you, but she gets a call from the family. You know, she had been kind of good friends with Meg, the daughter of Tony Collette's character, Joni. And Meg, you know, is calling being like, you are going to pay for my college, right? Like starting to put the feelers in there. She makes the vague promise that she's going to do right by them, whatever that means. And, Meg goes and basically tells the others what she knows about. I mean, she's the only one, I think, that was talking to Marta. And so she knows that Marta's mother is illegal. And now everyone does and wants to use that to their advantage.
1: And even a scene like that, where her friend is betraying her, it can be read either way. Like, was she forced to do it by the family? I mean, because as we pan back from that phone call, everybody mm-hmm. in the family's at her back. Like they made her do that.
3: I don't know if they made her do that or if they were just biting their fingernails with what the result would be. Because I kind of see all of that family as one cohesive unit at that point they've stopped their squabbling because now they're all fighting Marta because they all want their cut of the inheritance.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's unified them. If she gets all the money, then they can all be against her. Whereas normally, if it had been divvied out, they would be fighting over. You got that, and I deserve this. So, yes, it's helpful. And we see kindly old Walt come and, and just suggest that maybe she wants to do the right thing as he wields his cane. You know, one thing I did not realize until I watched some of the bonus materials is... I just thought Walt had the cane because it looked like aristocracy. Like, I look like old money when I walk around with a cane. But he's got a broken foot. And there was a deleted scene where some kind of loan shark had actually, he's in debt, so he's desperate to get more money than he's been given. Ah, I didn't realize that. I just took it as a character
3: affectation that he had something wrong with his leg. I didn't get any of that foot thing. But, you know, there's just so much Mm -hmm. character here. With yeah. every single one of them, that one of them has a cane,
1: didn't blink. I mean, so much character and so many characters. Like, we haven't even mentioned that Harlan's mother's still kicking around this house. You know, she she's seen quite a few of these things. You know, she she actually sees who eventually is guilty of this. You know, she saw Ransom leaving that night, and she said it out loud earlier in the movie.
3: I love it when they ask, how old is she? And they're like, we don't even know because Harlan was 85 and this (laughs) is his mother. So that puts her
2: at like, what, at least 103? Triple digits. Yeah, triple digits for sure. (laughs) And yeah, of course, that's going to play into senile jokes that when we see Marta trying to leave through the slapstick of that, she winds up, you know, she's told don't be seen by anyone. She winds up straight dab in the middle of the the window where this old lady's looking out. And what does she say? Ransom? Is that you? You know, so we just think doddering old woman, uh, nothing to fear here. But yeah, you're right. She has actually seen something that has already transpired. This is a valuable clue that she's offering. With all this backstabbing, you may forget (laughs) it get lost in here. There's one other character trying to get there. It's Fran, the housekeeper from the opening shot. Has been sort of hanging out. She's kind of friends with Marta. And she is behind, well, sort of. Let's break down the fact that all of a sudden, Marta is getting a note in the mail, being blackmailed, saying, I have a toxicology report. And I know what you did
1: switching the vials. Yeah, just the top half of it, though. Just enough information to show her that she's gotten a toxicology report and that it's for Harlan. So she doesn't know what the toxicology report came back with or what it says, but it feels like blackmail. We can assume because
2: her guilty conscience, she never doubted that she gave the wrong dosage. So it will be a pleasant surprise to realize that she was a good nurse and did the right thing. And...
3: We're not supposed to know it was Fran. We just know somebody is blackmailing Marta. And seeing this the second time, I remembered Ransom was the main villain, but I didn't remember the details of this blackmail plot. And so I'm thinking that Ransom is the one doing the blackmailing for the sake of manipulating Marta. But it's really like he's passing it on. Fran is trying to blackmail Ransom, who's then passing this header on and passing the meeting stuff on to Marta in an attempt to frame Marta for Fran's murder.
2: Yeah, what does Fran know? I need to parse this out because it gets really dense here. But she, at early scene, was talking about some Hallmark movie where someone was being poisoned to death. She's saying it to Marta, which sounds to me like she suspects Marta has been behind poisoning Harlan. Maybe. That's the way I would take such a suggestion. I certainly wouldn't take it as a suggestion you need to watch a Hallmark movie.
3: Apparently Ryan Johnson says on the commentary he and his wife are fans of Hallmark channel movies and he actually really
2: likes this Danica Keller movie. Yeah, I don't know (laughs) about that. But (laughs) I mean you can be a fan of something and not really like it. (laughs) You know, there's other ways to appreciate things. We have our brown arrows, right? Yeah, that's true. All right, but so Fran has a friend at the toxicology. She's looking into this, at least. But what we will find really late in the movie is she believes that Ransom did it because he was the only one, not at the funeral, snooping around, looking for the vials and and all of that stuff. She caught him because she was a housekeeper. And so... That's why she was doing this investigation. She was trying to
1: tell Marta, I think it's Ransom, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. And Arnie, you said possibly trying to blackmail, but like, I'm not sure that that's clear on screen. It might've just Mm. been out of the goodness of her heart or that she cared for Harlan or whatnot, but either way it's played so that we're supposed to think that Ransom knows that Marta did it at this point.
3: Yeah. Well, Fran sent that toxicology report header to Ransom, right? Right. And says, meet me at 10 a.m. tomorrow. So that's what looks like the blackmail going on there. And then when Marta shows up, Fran is looking at her and goes, you did this. Or does she say, Hugh did this? Because Ransom is the middle name. His first name is Hugh. And so Mm -hmm. they get that little way to play with it. We're thinking... That Fran is blaming Marta when in fact
1: Fran is giving us the answer that it was Hugh. And a little bit tricky filmmaking. In in the making of, they do actually say that it was said two different ways. The first time she does say you, second time in the memory she says Hugh. So it is misdirection in the audio track. Cheaters.
2: I don't know if we needed this, but I feel like it helps the movie have some energy in the second half. It gets a really lame chase out of it anyway. I think What do they call it? The stupidest? <laughs> Dumbest car
1: chase ever. Dumbest car chase. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs>
3: I love it because Chris Evans calls Marta baby driver <laughs> during this, referencing the
2: recent Edgar Wright film. <laughs> yeah again there are lots of references here and yeah I mean you just feel that this movie's teeming with clues and red herrings and just arrows pointing in all kinds of directions does that mean something yeah the first time you're watching this it would be very easy to get lost in the mystery and if it were about the mystery it would be very easy to be frustrated and give up on this movie I think but because this movie has taken the tack that it's really about Marta And that we have this subtext about this marginalized woman fighting not to be victimized and demonized at a time that politically, I mean, let's just go ahead and say that he is tapping into a really like culture war moment here with the way that 1% has used that as an attack against immigrants. I just feel like, yeah, that story carries the day. Whatever's going on with who's got what and the toxicology and all the the gamesmanship that I can't figure out, I am rooting for Marta. This movie works because I know Marta's in trouble and I'm hoping like hell that she doesn't get busted by Benoit.
1: Totally agreed. I mean, I, I said it earlier, without the character of Marta here and the great acting on screen... This could have fallen apart so quickly where you don't care about the mystery, you don't care about her getting away with it, and then you don't care about the mystery that pops up again here in the final third of the movie to find out that there actually is a who done it, but it's not what we thought.
2: And that Benoit has known kind of all along, right, put a lot of it together. And again, first viewing, he just really did seem kind of like an idiot. And I think there, something is even said, he's not much of a detective. She has to find the toxicology report to give him. It's like in Fran's, like, stash of marijuana on the final. Fireplace. She's like, you're not much of a detective. And he comes back with, well, you're not much of a murderer. Like, both of them feel like, yes, in the traditional sense
1: of a murder mystery, they're both lacking what we normally see. But you're totally right, Stuart, with your assessment of Benoit here. Like, on a first viewing, we don't know what he knows. We don't know if he's a bumbling idiot or not until he points to her shoe after all is said and done and says... He noticed that the blood splatter, the one little tiny drop of blood on her shoe, he noticed that right away. So that tells us he's on his game. He's sharp. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, the whole time he was on it. But we can forget that watching this movie because Marta seems to be getting away with it a lot, particularly after this car chase. I mean, like they arrest Chris Evans and they're like, are you OK? Did he make you do that? I'm like, really? She was <laughs> clearly behind the wheel. Like, I don't know why he would assume that. She's pushing 55. Yeah, Yeah, she's in the economy car that can't go nearly as fast as police, but she can hit the brakes and make turns. And again, it is amusing how like low stakes the car chase is, how easily they catch her, and yeah, how... Bidwa seems to miss it. Not only does he arrest the wrong person, but then he just lets her go off to some laundromat and find Fran dead with spiders all over her. And he's, like, jamming out to Soundheim show tunes while the ambulance is pulling up. He seems
1: to be clueless. Right. After a fire at the records place, I mean, things are getting out of control here. So, yeah, I mean, as as a detective... Even the police, you would think the police would be starting to ask, like, hey, what do you know? Do you know what's going on here? Because things are getting out of hand now.
2: Mm-hmm. And you feel that. Elliot is very much wanting to wrap this up as a suicide. So it's kind of amusing that once we get to the climax here, that's exactly what happens. Like you see Benoit going, suicide. You're not going to be able to try this woman because the attack that they want is if they can somehow pin the murder on her, then she doesn't get any of the inheritance. And so he's he's going to... Claim suicide, well, because it's true, but also so that these scheming vultures, this is where we get the title of the movie, is that he talks about their claws and their beaks and their the blood, the knives out, all of that. He's not going to let these people ruin this innocent woman's life. And things escalate because somebody set the coroner's office on fire. I mean,
3: that car chase was from the smoldering ashes of what had been the coroner's office where the toxicology report came from. Right. Making
2: that piece of paper all the more important because it is the only proof of, well, we think it's proof that she gave him too much morphine, but it actually proves... That she didn't. And this is where it all kind of gets walked through in classic fashion. This is where the movie becomes old-fashioned again. And we have a really long scene of the detective laying out how it went down. And why Ransom is the one who's really to blame.
3: And yet, none of it really comes down about Harlan. This whole thing has been who killed Harlan? Was Harlan a suicide? Did Marta overdose Harlan? And because Ransom switched the drugs, we're going to find out Marta didn't give an overdose, but thought she did. If Harlan had listened to her, if they called an ambulance, he'd just have been fine because he got the right medicines. Ain't that a bitch?
2: (laughs) How many novels he could have written, but yeah, he he just wrote himself out of the earth so quickly here again i have to believe he kind of had an old man boner for her right like it's more than she was nice to him like i've seen this like sometimes old men lose their heads over younger women like okay i'll kill myself for you yeah usually (laughs) they don't literally lose their heads like that though they don't (laughs) cut their throats open which is a hell of a way to commit suicide anyway (laughs) I do think it's a convenient of this movie. I think that he was just a little too willing to take that blade to his neck. He was not suicidal. And again, I think, I don't know, in those moments with her, did he have regrets about how his family had turned out? I know he didn't want them to have his money, but I just, I don't know. That part
1: just feels a little convenient. Yeah, I mean, I can go along with it. A, A mystery writer wanting to go out, you know, like a romantic, I buy it he was 80 i guess he might have felt like he was done i don't know
2: 85 oh was it 85 yeah still (laughs) that doesn't feel that old anymore
1: (laughs) but i mean it should be said that christopher Plummer's not playing this guy as a skeevy old guy i mean he's very demure and put together a little flirty with marta but it's not not that he's a perv yeah agreed
2: yeah we like him and we like her and now we kind of like benoit because he's He's figured it all out, and he's got the right person. And yeah, we have Chris Evans, well, trying two different tacks. First, he goes with the privileged idea. Okay, yeah, maybe I gave too much morphine to Fran, but in the end, I got good lawyers. I didn't kill her. I'm going to get away with this. And so, who cares? And this is
3: all because Marta lied and actually held down her (laughs) upchucking for a while. She gets a phone call... And pretends that Fran survived, thinking that she was able to give her the cure in time for the morphine overdose.
1: I just hope whoever, the doctor or nurse on the other end of that line, had said it real quick and then hung up. Because what a terrible way. You have to make a phone call to let somebody know somebody died. And the person on the line is like, <laughs> oh, that's great news. Thank you. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. But, of course, the whole point is everything is so that she can blow chunks in Chris Evans' face. And then, all right, in for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah, if I'm going to go down, if I did kill Fran and now I can't get off these charges as easily as I thought, might as well kill someone else. Someone that I really want dead. And it was said earlier. It was a part of their evening together playing Go. That this man, he has lots of weird props lying around, but he had a real knife and he had a stage knife. I don't know why, but the wrong one
3: was grabbed. He actually said that about Ransom. He said, Ransom's a lot like me as a kid, can't tell a real knife from a stage knife. And yes, on this big wheel of knives, which is a very strange thing and yet such a wonderful visual representation of the title, Knives Out... I don't know if all the knives on that wheel are fake knives or just the one Ransom grabbed. But yes, he grabs a knife to stab Martha in the heart and it's a retractable blade. Right.
2: Yeah, it would be too weird to actually kill her. I mean, that would be too dark for this movie. This movie is twisted, but again, I feel like it's rightfully pg-13 it's for the 13 year old that yeah has problems with their family but doesn't want nihilism it would be awful to see her go down we want it to be traditional enough that the villain doesn't get away with it chris evans is hauled away in handcuffs while don johnson is screaming that he's going to get him off and we see some more justice happen here as well this is the pink letter, the one that supposedly was going to tell all the secrets that John Johnson was up to with his mistress. Well, when he broke into the desk earlier, there was no writing on it. I had figured this much out. I'm like, Mm. Jamie Lee Curtis talked about how her dad talked in code and you had to speak in his
1: language and play his games. And like you said, we all read uh, Encyclopedia Brown books growing up. So
2: Mm -hmm. yeah, like this is the way I would want, if I were a mystery writer, this is how I would communicate with everyone. Invisible ink. She gets out her cigar and, and lights up and then, yeah, takes it to the paper. And yeah, now she knows her, Husband is a scumbag. The real mystery is, didn't she already know that? It's Don Johnson.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, even without the letter, should she be surprised? I don't think so.
2: Mm -hmm. And then the final question. Again, what should Marta do? Does she deserve this house? Does she deserve to sit at the head of this. You know, she's now holding that mug, my house, my rules, my coffee. Like, how is she going to negotiate it? It's kind of perfect that we cut away without knowing her decision. We just trust that she will make the right one because we like her. But
1: yeah, I don't know. Would you give these guys anything? Does she owe them anything? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the question, right? Like, even Harlan was giving them everything and that wasn't enough for them. So... Would you want to continue that cycle? I don't know. I might just disappear. hmm Yeah.
3: <laughs> I don't know. I'd probably leave Walt in place because he knows how to run the publishing company and he knows how to exploit the f- film rights where the real money is. So Walt at least seems useful. The others, well, <laughs> eh, maybe pay the college tuition for the one girl who's come to rely on it and seems like a friend. Although she did backstab mm-hmm. Marta with that phone call. So...
2: yeah. I think the point is that she's now the boss. They're going to have to listen to her. The point is they never did listen to her. They never did consider her. And now she is an equal. And they have to, you know, maybe even more than an equal. But they will have to negotiate. And that feels like the right choice. I think Benoit is going to leave her there. I don't imagine she's going to be in the sequel. But I guess it could be people trying to kill her next time. Hmm. Not anything I ever considered. I always just
3: assumed that this was a great murder-she-wrote kind of thing, where each one would be Benoit on a new murder. But before we get to the second
1: one, Justin, Stewart, do you recommend Knives Out? Justin. You know, like I said, coming into this, I missed it when it came out, and I was always meaning to see it, and I'm glad that I finally got a chance to see it, and actually very pleasantly surprised at how much I end up liking this movie. It hits on so many notes for me. I mean from the cinematography to the locations to the to the score. The cast is incredible. I can't think of one miscast person here. And the story, you know, if you think you're going in like we've been talking about to a murder mystery, well that pretty much wraps up in the first one third of this movie. So for a movie to say, hey, this is a murder mystery, who done it? And tell you who done it real early on, and keep me stitched to my couch the rest of the time. That's a feat, you know. I can't say enough good things about this movie. I I really enjoyed it. It's it's got a vibe that is just awesome. It just hits all those things for me, you know. The like I said, the cinematography is beautiful. Set in New England in the fall, one of my favorite places and seasons. I want to live in this movie. I guess is what I'm saying. Mm. You know, if this if this was a place that you could go to, I'm there. I get it. Yep, <laughs> I can't give it a high enough recommend. This is probably one of the favorite things that I've sat down and reviewed with now playing. So yeah, this is my highest recommend. Wow, Stuart.
2: Yeah, and you know, it's rare that I have this experience. The last time I think I felt this way was when I watched the original Pirates of the Caribbean in theaters, which is to say that I went in thinking, oh, I might like this, but it's too old-fashioned, right? It's like this creaky old thing that nobody's going to get. It's going to fail. Murder mystery, pirate movie, those are bygone eras, right? But no, they managed to tweak a formula and... And really, all the cliches play for a modern audience. Knives Out really is a very contemporary story. I want to emphasize that modern part, really, because that's that's the true surprise. It'd be one thing if he just Ryan Johnson said, "Okay, I'm going to do a retro, cute thing where there's a lot of trapdoors and a dollhouse full of murder and vice." I'd be fine. With that, if it were simply a retro Agatha Christie storyline. But no, there are knives here. And although this movie is fairly bloodless, particularly for a Lionsgate movie, I mean, they cut deep when it's time to talk about culture wars, the politics of Trump, and really all this subtext about the marginalization and demonization of immigrants. Like, after I saw the movie, I'm like, wow, are people going to be cool with this? Like, go woke, go broke, sometimes... Those messages, uh, you know, get shredded. Like, people just end up destroying the movie on social media, but they can't. In this case, everyone's going to be cool with it because of Anna de Armas. Like, she is the thing. It's her undeniable charm that really sells us on the character and her plight. She's the heart of this movie. I mean, this cast is all great. Everyone here does a fine job playing caricatures and, and people with agendas. But her story is the one full of surprises. She goes from being the person in the background to being the killer to being someone we're really rooting for to being someone that really administers the justice against these one percenters yeah i just love watching her in this movie and it's to my sadness really that realize that she's not going to be watson in the next one like i've already looked i'll I'll be honest with you (laughs) i've already looked at the next one even though they probably could have gone that way i'm not sold yet on daniel craig but i'm sold on her and i'm sure going to miss her next time because i think She's at least 50% of why this movie works, and yeah, it's a great homage to the past. It's got comedy. It's got mystery. It's got political bite. I really do think that it's a very solid recommend. Yeah, uh, watch Knives Out.
3: And three for three, and you talked about the modernization, Stuart, and one of the things I absolutely love is this film's incredible attention to detail. If you look. Martha's phone is cracked on the screen. When she gets a call, it says, Maybe B. Blanc. You know, it's truly modern in a way that feels 100% real. The verisimilitude oozing off the screen sells it entirely. And yet, when I went into this movie, I expected a good murder mystery. But what I didn't expect is what Justin talked about, which is the vibe of the film. The fact that it is so amusing with the family attacking each other just so viciously and so cutting and (laughs) just the true awfulness of these people when the Nazi child calls Marta an anchor baby. (laughs) I mean, it's just these horrible things that they're saying and yet because they're playing it broad, it's Funny because you're laughing at the Nazi kid. You're not supposed to American history X this and really believe that that kid is going to be dangerous in any way. And yeah, this film has amazing performances across the board from the most minor role up to Anna D'Armas. I can't say enough about the cast, but really, the hero of this film is Ryan Johnson. If you look at the writing, this is one tight script. The way the plot unfolds, when things are revealed, is counterintuitive. Telling us about 45 minutes into the movie, Marta did it all, and then still saying, okay, there's an hour of movie left, that could really run the risk of getting an audience bored. And I'm never bored during this film. It constantly keeps me engaged and amused and... Yeah, I don't think the first time. I can't really remember, but I don't think I knew Captain America did it. And that's a nice twist as well. So, yeah, it's a very strong recommend. And to me, Knives Out isn't a person, it's a vibe. And even though I just expect it's only Daniel Craig back for the next one, if they can keep this vibe, then... I'm up for as many of these as Ryan wants to make.
2: Yeah, it's certainly a rebound after what I will call the stumble of Star Wars. And again, it really looked like his career might be over with that film. And now there's a new direction for him, for James Bond. That movie made close to a billion dollars. (laughs) And yet you're the only person I know that talks
1: about it glowingly. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) But it's not a creative (laughs) triumph like this movie. I feel like he got all of the frustrations of being told no by a bigger entity on Star Wars out with this movie. This feels 100% like... Ryan Johnson's baby.
2: Yeah. And again, just like it connects. Whereas you might like, all right, maybe millions of people like Last Jedi. It's compromised, right? Like you don't love it. It's not your favorite Star Wars. Like this one might be your favorite murder mystery. And it is because I think in part, like, you know, the thing about satire is usually it's filled with unlikable people. That's what makes it fun. You're ripping terrible people apart. But some people don't like to be with that much ugliness. They've solved that problem. problem by having a character you like so much in the middle and that you're rooting for hoping that again maybe even wanting her to kill these people (laughs) that deserve it so again like a really savvy you're right the writing here is really counterintuitive and all the choices end up paying out pretty well yeah I do think it's a great demonstration of Ryan's love for the past and his ability to make it contemporary all over again But we're not covering the sequel next week. There's another sequel we got to get to first. The Na'vi are back. We're covering Avatar The Way of Water. This weekend it opens. Wonder if it's going to be as big as it was, what, 13 years ago? We'll have to see. And then, yes, over Christmas weekend, the sequel Glass Onion debuts on Netflix. It's probably how most people are going to watch it. But we're going to the movie theaters and we will be there shortly thereafter to review that second knives out mystery, Glass Onion, two weeks. Meanwhile, this Friday, if you haven't
3: donated to Now Playing's Fall Winter 2022 donation drive, now is the time. We are starting our gold level series, a hundred years of dystopia, showing that bleak envisionings of the future have been with us since the dawn of cinema, and we are reviewing the oldest film Now Playing has ever reviewed, the silent film Metropolis as our first in this dystopia series.
2: I'm sure, you may not know the movie, but I'm sure everybody knows the robot, right? The flapper girl that's gonna... Well, if you don't, you really look it up. Join us for this. I do think it's gonna be fun. It's kind of refreshing, right? You think, you look outside your window, you think, is it all going to end? The answer is, we always thought it was going to end. Back in 1927, they had a vision of, yeah, a a terrible future called Metropolis that... I don't think has come to be, but we'll talk about it. Are we living in that metropolis that Fritz Lang imagined a hundred years ago? We'll discuss that and so many other sci-fi dystopias in the weeks ahead. Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, 1984, Water World, Children of Men, so many to talk about.
3: And you can get that with a donation of $25 or more, and that also includes our Adams Family Retrospective series. And if you do $35 or more, you can hear the Wicker Man series and Midsummer that just wrapped up a couple weeks ago. So we hope you can join us. You can find the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And Justin Stewart, thanks for joining me. And we got to do this more often.
1: Strange case from the start. A case
0: with a hole in the middle. A donut? I feel the noose tightening. One central piece. And if it reveals itself, the fog would lift. Thank you for listening to this now playing podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show.
3: You guys, fans?
2: Big uh, fan. I'm a big fan.
0: Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice.
1: You will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer of the truth.
0: Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts.
2: Are you baiting me, detective?
0: On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Star Wars, Spider-Man, Batman, X-Men, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and Transformers. I expect it's going to be about something, if not extraordinary, then at
2: least interesting.
0: Plus, we have individual movie reviews, such as Titanic, E.T., Inception, Big Hero 6, Ready Player 1, Pulp Fiction, Apocalypse Now, Doctor Strangelove, and hundreds more. The game is afoot. Hey, Watson. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast.
2: I think this could be the best thing to happen to all of you.
0: Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. Do as I say. And everything will be just fine. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at nowplayingpodcast.com.
1: So how about it, Watson?
0: And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews.
1: I trust your kind heart.
0: Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our InFocus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday.
1: I anticipate the terminus of Gravity's rainbow.
0: Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You know, this is an interesting and efficient method of murder. Associate produced by Jason Latham.
2: My presence will be ornamental.
0: Now playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. Dandil,
2: I don't get more tired every day. Tired of what I do.
0: Now playing credits read by Brock. I think you have something you want to tell me. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Enganza Media Incorporated.
2: Everyone can lie. Well, almost everyone.
0: (laughs) Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended.
3: So I guess I will find the right lawyers.
0: Now Playing podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated.
2: This is stupid with two O's.
0: Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.
2: Who is that guy? And why are we doing
1: all this again? This is
2: to go see this thing that kind of looked like Clue. That was my thought, was, you know, the flop 1985 (laughs) board game adaptation movie that I always loved. Saw it in theaters, and maybe one day we'll do a proper podcast review too, but... It's in the book. No, it's not. It's not in the book? No. I thought I put it in the book. Okay. Did you? Maybe you did. I'm trying to think. There's There's not an illustration for it. No, there's no art. Yeah. You did write a review of it, though. Now that I think about it. Weird. (laughs) I don't know. We're covering Avatar The Way of Water. This weekend it opens. Wonder if it's going to be as big as it was, what, 13 years ago? We'll have to see. Hey, they fixed the font issue. That's all I know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that means. (laughs) Look it up. James Cameron talked about it. He loves that font.
1: <laughs> As a graphic designer, I can say somebody got paid to type Avatar in Papyrus font 13 years <laughs> ago. And mm. it's driven me and many other people in the graphics community absolutely crazy.
3: Yeah. Cameron says he loves that font and loves that
1: title in it. <laughs> <laughs> Off-the-shelf font choice.
2: I've heard a lot of complaints about Avatar, but never about fonts. Okay, you're you're (laughs) opening my eyes. But, uh...